0: For the love of home.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. There's a reason Chef Jose Andres was asked to throw out the ceremonial first pitch at Game 5 of the World Series. He's an immigrant, an activist, and a humanitarian. I sat down with Chef Andres at a live recording of Cape Up at NYU's Skirball Theater earlier this year. He'd just returned from helping with disaster relief in Mozambique. We talked about that, his efforts in Puerto Rico, Haiti, and Washington, D.C. during the government shutdown, and how disaster response could change. What comes through is human decency and moral leadership. And you can hear all of it right now. we are getting a standing ovation. Do you see that? Yeah. I,
2: I think are the ones that think I'm cooking tonight. <laughs> They're going to be so disappointed. <laughs>
1: Well, Chef Andres, thank you very much for being here. This is a a live taping of my Washington Post podcast, Cape Up. And I'm surprised you're awake. You just got back from Mozambique. Yeah, but it was already a few days ago. But why were you in Mozambique? What took
2: you there? Well, I think you saw the video. That's very much what World Central Kitchen does. So uh, I think you know what happened with the cyclone in Mozambique, which was very much the country heated hit the most. Uh, in the town of Beira. If you've never been to Beira, it's an unbelievable city. But the area affected is huge. So hundreds of thousands of families, millions of people were affected by this. And everybody moved very much around the Beira area, where is different refugee camps. So we do what we do. A team of mine landed two days after the cyclone. Very much four or five days later, they were already cooking thousands of meals. We are right now in 16th, refugee camps, hospitals, and some schools, which are reopening slowly now. So I think three days ago, we reached on the north of 20,000, almost 25,000 meals a day. We have two kitchens, and that's what we do. When people are in need, we arrive, we find the food, we find the kitchens, we find the helpers, the volunteers that want to join us, chefs from all over Africa that began flying in to help us. And hopefully we'll be there a few more weeks uh, reaching as many people as we can.
1: Well, I find it interesting that you said that you found the need and you, you went in, but there's need all over the world. How do you decide when you're going to go someplace and bring the help that you bring? Well, I say
2: that I'm a chef like many, like many cooks like me, right? We feed the few of you, including the Yelpers, that we wouldn't survive without you. <laughs> I love Yelpers. I mean, they keep me my toes, I tell you. My wife is kind of a Yelper that doesn't write on Yelp. (laughs) She gives me my toes. But, you know, still we are a very small organization. But if we think what we've uh, achieved the last two years alone, we've been in Hawaii after the volcano. We've been in in all the fires in California, in every single hurricane in the last few years in the States. Obviously, Puerto Rico was almost four million meals. We've been in Guatemala after the volcano exploded. We've been in Indonesia after the first earthquake, first tsunami, and second tsunami. We are right now in Mozambique. Well, I mean, very much we are in Tijuana feeding, we're in Colombia feeding Venezuelans between Cucuta and Bucaramanga. Again, we are a very small NGO, but our reach is becoming bigger because there is need, as you said. So what do we decide? Usually, we, it's hunger in a lot of places. I could be taking care of hunger in New York City right now that we know is issues, is issues in Washington, D.C. Well, in Washington, I'm part of an NGO that tries to help on that issue. But I believe that when these moments happen, when you are kind of living a normal life, whatever is your status quo, and something like this dramatic happens, everybody's affected. Why? Because nobody's ready. And so I do believe it's very important that we go there to give support to those communities that they've been badly hit by an event that they never expected. So how do we choose randomly? It's, you know, We could be in Syria right now. We could be in Iran that has been flooding. Well, we, we try to go where we think is the biggest, most massive kind of hit by a natural event or political event. and
1: mm-hmm. um, We go and we try use to feed the people as soon as we can. Well, let's talk more specifically about World Central Kitchen, which you founded in 2010. And was that as a result of the work you did in Haiti after yep. the earthquake? Did you form World Central Kitchen before heading down to Haiti, or you just went to Haiti and out of that experience came World Central Kitchen? Right after.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I got uh, $50,000 from a
1: foundation called the Bilsek
2: Foundation, which actually this year they honor chef, Marcus Samuelson. This year, they gave him 100000 Like, really? Ten years later, you get double? (laughs) (laughs) So this was a foundation that they honor doctors, that they were immigrants, and they had a contribution to America or to the world. And every few years, they honor people from other parts of arts and science and culture and arts. And so I guess they gave me this award, which was a personal award, I asked them. What do I do with it? You can buy a Rolls Royce. I'm like, shit, I don't like Rolls Royce. <laughs> 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 what do I do with it? And when Heidi happened, obviously, my wife and I and my partner, Rob Wilder, we kind of pitching mm-hmm. that money a little bit more, and we founded Wall Central Kitchen. But my idea really came from probably all of you, right, that we are always influenced by somebody or some event in life. At the end, we are the sum of all the things and people that are around our lives and our bodies. Me, early on in life, uh, 1993, I met uh, Robert Egger, who was this amazing individual who founded DC Central Kitchen uh, back in 88. And Robert Egger created an organization that will pick food that was wasted, bring it back to a centralized kitchen, repack the food that was untouched, give it back to the community shelters. In the process, we began taking people out of the streets, out of jails, ex-combits, ex-drug addicts trying to help them, trying to put them back up and running with an apartment. and Then we train them to be cooks. And in the process, they will help and lead the volunteers coming to the kitchen, feeding thousands of people a day. In the process, they will learn culinary techniques. They will graduate and they will be hired by restaurants like mine. So Robert Egger was very important in me in showing how really food can be an agent of change. Robert Egger said, the charity seems is about the redemption of the giver, when charity should be about the liberation of the receiver. You think this is a very powerful phrase? I mean, I should have steal this phrase because it's so good. That's why I keep mentioning Robert openly because I don't want anybody to confuse who came up with the idea. But this tells you what was the idea. of This is of Wall Central Kitchen, mm-hmm. following the learning I had as a very young boy in DC. Through my contributions through this central kitchen and everything I learned, and try to bring the same kind of idea in different scenarios to Haiti and to other
1: places around the world. Now, World Central Kitchen bursts back into everyone's consciousness because of Puerto Rico. Yeah. And because of the woeful response by the federal government to what was happening in Puerto Rico in the film that was shown. And I don't know if, because it was a reduced portion of the film that you just saw, but in there, I believe in that you say that it was when you saw the first responders in Puerto Rico coming to you, to your kitchens for food, was when you realized that the federal government was not coming.
2: Well... Many things happen at once, right? I think federal government is when we speak about FEMA, and don't misunderstand me. The men and women of FEMA are, are great people, are people that they leave home sometimes for weeks, if not months, and they work 24-7, trying to make sure that every American in this repair, after a hurricane, a tornado, a fire, they're taken care of. But sometimes that they, you have goodwill doesn't mean you are performing to your best. With food, it's a very simple thing, right? It's over. (laughs) With food, it's a very simple thing, right? If you're hungry and you're thirsty, do you have a lot of patience? When you come to my restaurant and 30 minutes later, I didn't send you the first tapa, you start bitching on Yelp, obviously. (laughs) Rightfully so. Imagine the same situation a day, two days, three days later, that you don't have food and you don't have water. So food is a very good example of the urgency of now. If it's an emergency, and you're supposed to take care of your fellow citizens, fellow Americans. If you're hungry, you're hungry today. Your children are hungry today. The elderly are hungry today. The very young kids are hungry today. Any day that passes is one day too late. So this is a very simple thing to understand in emergencies. The urgency of now is now. That you do have the, sometimes you will hear that they say, We have assets ready to be delivered, but to own assets doesn't mean that you are getting them. We're not an organization of cooks that find food, kitchens, volunteers, and cook the food. We're an organization that goes looking for those that are in need of a hot plate of food. So yes, I believe that the response we did to Haiti was amazing and massive. We sent the military, we sent USAID, we sent the best of the best. If you buy the book, (laughs)
1: The book, We Fed an Island, The True Story of Rebuilding Puerto Rico One Meal at a Time, that book? Where
2: 100% of the proceeds go to Central Kitchen and other NGOs, there you will see we do a very good comparison by the response to Haiti in hours, days, and people, and ships and helicopters and food, and, and the response to Puerto Rico, American territory. And very much when Katrina happened, I wish it was in Katrina, because I think it's a moment in my life I wish I could go back in life and be there, especially at the Superdome. But after Katrina, we read that Katrina response, it failed the people and will never happen again, especially the poor people, the minorities. Well, Maria was another Katrina, but this case was not a city and a very big part of a city. This was an entire island of 3.7 million Americans that very much were... Initially, 30 forgotten, And the people were there. Don't misunderstand me. It was a lot of people that the government was sent. But sometimes you feel they are all in a headquarters with computers and Excel spreadsheets. And we are the kind of people that we go into the ground. We are more the boots-on-the-ground type of organization.
1: So speaking of these officials who are sitting in a room looking over spreadsheets, when we look at disasters like that in Haiti, Mozambique, Puerto Rico, the floods in Nebraska, that usually the way food is delivered is a helicopter or a plane flies over, drops down cases of water and MREs, and zooms on and goes by. Why isn't that an efficient use of time and power and resources? There's been a lot
3: of uh,
2: talk lately about the MREs. Everybody knows the term MRE, meal ready to eat. But if you go after you finish and you start Googling, put MRE, and you're going to see the hundreds of thousands of different meanings that our great men and women of the military came up with. <laughs> <laughs> and on i pretty. MREs were rations of food created for war zone to feed our men and women in moments that you will not have a cook like me feeding you every day. And on that ground, they are very well created. You can put an MRE in the middle of Fifth Avenue, come back 50 years later <laughs> and probably it'll be in better shape and tastier than the day you put it up and it's still be good for human consumption. So MREs really are the best of humanity, putting what we know into food that, wow, wow, this food never goes bad. Like, it's <laughs> like, brilliant. You know, you can put it on the oven, you can put it on the mixer, right? you can do whatever you want. You can make a shake with it, whatever you want. You can be as creative... But MREs, it's one moment that nobody likes them. It's one moment that even very poor people in Haiti in parts of Africa, people that you say, but they're hungry. They never eat. Yeah, but they're humans. They have their own morals and decency. They know what they want, even as poor as they are. And MREs is not something that like people really like. In Haiti, you could see use the boys. They were selling them. They were playing golf with that. <laughs> they will play soccer with the balls. I mean, they will do whatever. But they will not eat them at one the moment. But the truth is that also MREs are very expensive. So if you are, let's say, in Puerto Rico, the number we were talking about hungry people during a few weeks was on the north of a million and a half. So it's a million and a half, right? So it's a million and a half MREs that you need daily, right? How many days? We were estimating that the lease was around three, four weeks. So you start doing 30 days, of a million and a half, 45 million MREs. Every MRE can cost between $10 and $15.00 sometimes more. So start doing numbers, right? This is not sustainable. And anyway, it doesn't happen. What happens is what you say. Sometimes the MREs occupy a lot of space. You bring a truck that looks like you're giving a lot of food to town, but that is barely enough food to cover a percentage of the town that is hungry, and maybe one or two days. But everybody believes like, oh, the federal government came and gave us food. No, they barely, they just show up as a way of saying, that's why MREs don't work. In one tray of food that we deliver, is 40 meals. That same tray of four, 48 meals in one tray is only four MREs. So in terms of space, it's not very efficient. The amount of helicopter strike that you will have to be bringing to feed an entire island like Puerto Rico was simply an impossibility. So what we did was a smart way to do it. We went from, I don't know if I really never watched the video. <laughs> I, I don't like to. I mean, I, I don't know how you listen my English, but I don't listen. I only listen to my Spanish. <laughs> but we went from one kitchen to 26 kitchens. We went from 20 friends the first day to more than 25,000 volunteers. We went from 1,000 meals a day to 150,000 meals in the peak of the mission. So what we did was very massive in that sense. If we had to do it with MREs, the, the amount of ships and, and boats and trucks and helicopters and planes will be massive. MREs don't work because people don't like them, because elderly cannot eat them, becomes almost a unhealthy way of feeding older people. It's super expensive for any country, including the richest country in the history of mankind. And at the end, they don't really solve the problem because when you drop, as you said, an MRE in a town, you don't know what the problem is. You have to talk to the locals. You have to talk to the leaders, the mayor, whoever is in charge in that community. You need to understand what the real needs is. That's why this dropping and leaving, it doesn't work. That's why our system is so efficient. We show up and we become part of the community, and the community is the one guiding us on what the real needs are.
1: That gets to the question I was going to ask, because as you walked us through what happened in Puerto Rico, just showing up one kitchen that expanded, how do you expand like that from kitchens to the amount of food to the amount of people you are able to reach in a disaster zone, in a disaster area? Where does the food come from? Where does all of that come from? <laughs> yeah. Okay,
2: many things happen, right? <laughs> you have to be careful with dreaming in the open, because people can believe you, right? Like, it's one moment I needed a helicopter to drop foot, and I had my team, my closer team, are like, okay, we cannot reach them, uh, Jose, we cannot reach them anywhere, the roads are closed, the only way is for a helicopter. I'm like, okay, go and find me a helicopter. All right, an hour later, we were owning a helicopter. But everybody credits me for I did nothing. I only say, Get me a helicopter. It happened. <laughs> this only tells you how resourceful people are, especially women. We had a lot of women working with us. And you don't tell them anything like that because they make it happen. And I'm like, Really? The food. The first thing I did was precisely make the three, four phone calls to know with the biggest food purveyors of the island, the sewers of the island, what was the situation? Private sector. And all told me, Jose, we are okay. We may be missing this or this or that or that, but we are okay. We are used to these hurricanes. We have generators. We, have, we may have issues with this, but our facilities were okay. We're going to be okay. You're going to need to adapt, but we're going to be okay. Next thing, I show up, and what do you do in America? You give your credit cards. <laughs> you hand it over your credit card. Yeah. And you fill up line of credit. And that's how we began very much at the beginning.
1: Are you still paying off that helicopter? No. no okay. <laughs> All right. You know, help
2: us with a helicopter, Goya. Do you ever buy Goya products? Yeah, you can clap at them because Goya did an amazing job and they, I don't think they got the credit they deserve. They were badly hit, but the family owned a helicopter. They never made a big deal and they were using it every day. They and night used to do food drops across the island. So it was people like that that you see without centralized, headquarters, government-led operations, things were happening, and I like that. I don't think we should be depending on the government to take care of everything, especially when sometimes the problem is so big that sometimes that centralization of power doesn't work. Why? Because when you come from the outside, the outsiders are telling the locals how you should run your life, and the locals know best how life should be run. In emergencies, locals know best how to take care of their own. We need to achieve a better moment where those organizations come in to help people in America or around the world.
1: Listen to the locals more and bring them into the solution. Well, this is part of the central message of your book, because you write, one, that you want the government to get rid of this top-down authoritarian sort of way of dealing with crises. And you write... When it came to Puerto Rico, what we did was embrace complexity every single second, not planning, not meeting, just improvising. The old school wants you to plan, but we needed to feed the people. It was one moment that
2: what I look is for kitchens, right? And we had this very big, the first day we landed from the airport, was this big arena called El Choli, El Coliseo. Puerto Ricans love El Choli. And it's, you know, a stadium, uh, it's kind of a concert hall, a basketball hall, whatever. And there they were using it to bring water resources. Whatever was being donated was the gathering place. They were sending everything there. And we found out that they had a huge kitchen, huge kitchen, a kitchen to feed the entire arena. And I wanted that kitchen. And I'm like, can you give me that kitchen? No, we're using this kitchen. Why? Because it's 80 people in here working and we're using the kitchen to feed them. I'm like, really? So anyway, I gave up because I didn't know who to call in that moment. So we began cooking in this smaller kitchen, Jose Enrique, one of the best restaurants, one of the nicest guys, one of the best chefs in the island, who was the guy that very much gave us the first initial help with not only his kitchen, but his teams, his family members, his contacts, the initial food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As our operation began growing, every day it looked to me like it was an entire month of my life. (laughs) <laughs> the days were never ending. But by the end of almost a week, we almost reached 15,000 meals a day. Very quickly. We went from Monday through Saturday, 15,000 meals. But we were in the middle of the town. We needed to span because we kept receiving phone calls. The orders keep forever growing. We couldn't say no to anybody. So by Saturday that we were doing 15,000 means that by Monday we had to be doing thirty or 40,000. Because people were finding out and they were calling us. That Friday is when I know we have to move is when I pick up the phones again. People were seeing what we were doing. I'm like, I need to move to that kitchen. And at the end, thanks to the first lady of Puerto Rico, we were able to move into that kitchen, which was only 100 at the moment. In that kitchen, in less than two weeks, we reached 75,000 meals a day, for you to understand how big that kitchen was. We were cooking inside. We were cooking paellas outside became half of our entire operation, was coming out from this gigantic arena. That's why I say that I wish during Katrina in the Superdome I was there. Because think for a second, okay, when you go to watch an NBA game or a concert in an arena, you will say, what's the Madison Square Garden? Wow, where the New York Knicks play. Like, no. Madison Square Garden is a gigantic restaurant that happens, entertains with MBA. <laughs> <laughs> so in emergencies, we need to start establishing the protocols on how, what properties and buildings could be used to take care of Americans in a moment of emergency. And for me, now, every time we go somewhere, we, for example, in Florence, or when we move into North Carolina, or even the last one in Florida... I don't know if you saw the photos of Mexico Beach and the photo of Panama Beach. There we had a very hard time finding kitchens because really, really, Mexico Beach was wiped out. So we adapted, we didn't have the kitchen, but we have paella pens. You know paella pens? We had gas, we had a refrigerator truck. The day after, Mexico Beach, we put four paellas out there. We began doing thousands of meals every single day right on Mexico Beach. So what we do very much is if we find the kitchens, we use them. If we don't find them, we adapt. But adaptation is probably the best tool that World Central Kitchen. We don't plan, as you said. We don't mean. Because if we plan too much, chances are that things are going to be completely wrong. And once you plan, and you have a plan, and everybody agrees on the plan, if the plan goes out of line, people freeze. If you don't plan, and you tell everybody, Jose, what are we going to do? I don't know. We're going to adapt. Everybody, okay, I understand. (laughs) <laughs> if you tell them, we're going to open the kitchen on that building, and then that building is destroyed, everybody freezes. Adapting always, in these scenarios, is going to be
1: more important than planning. Let me bring you back to the mainland. And you came to Washington you, in the 1990s, early 90s, right? And when you got there, you started basically, within months, started volunteering with D.C. Central Kitchen, So you had an insight into homelessness and hunger at a very nitty-gritty level in Washington, but then the government shutdown happened, this most recent one towards the end of last year, and now you decide to jump in and feed the government workers. And so now you're going from, in your experience, working with homeless and people who are getting their way out of homelessness to professionals who have found themselves completely knocked out of work, working class, middle class, even upper middle class people showing up at your kitchens lined around the block. Can you talk about what that was like for you to see this happening in the nation's capital?
2: Well, the reason we did this is because the last shutdown, if I'm right, was in 2013. and was not long, but was long enough. And there is when I began getting a sense, especially talking to some woman from the federal government with children, that they were afraid that if this went any longer, they were going to be in financial pain. And they were afraid of feeding their children or school or whatever other issues they had in their life to cover with their paycheck. So we began doing in my restaurants in 2013, just doing a sandwich at the bar between three and five. and became very popular and quite frankly, my staff, who, you know, very much work volunteering and for free during those times, and we felt was the right thing to do. At the end, my restaurants, quite frankly, they've been successful thanks to those same federal workers. So for us, it was the right thing, especially when I spoke to those women. When this last one happened, I was in Puerto Rico. This was going for long. We saw what President Trump was saying. He very much didn't care about finding a compromise, and I felt that it was unfair to do this. My restaurants jumped in from the beginning again. We began feeding thousands of people. But as I saw this was going longer, and really people were about to miss the first paycheck, is when we decided to activate my NGO, Wall Central Kitchen. Why? Because we sensed that was about to be a hunger issue in the United States. So we had not only my restaurants, but many of my friends around Washington DC, they decided to join Sweetgreen and Pizza, Many restaurants, we were many restaurants around the sea. And all of a sudden, we began getting phone calls from other towns. Before we knew, we were close to 23 states, 537 restaurants that were donating one meal a day to the federal employees in their towns. We were very much covering the spectrum of the big areas where federal employees were. And at the end, what was the right thing to do. That line got around the restaurant that we opened on the Navy Memorial right on, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania Avenue, Avenue between equal distance from Congress and the White House. We were feeding close to 12, 13, 14,000 federal workers a day. We opened a market next door, a market where people could get diapers and people could negotiate with Pepco, you know. The power uh, company. Uh, the power yep. company of Washington uh, used to move the debt later on, whatever, negotiating it. Uh, at the end, became a very good, beautiful, social, all people coming together to help each other event. And we got congressmen and senators coming and volunteering and talking to the people. And people were hard on them, but they were a good game. We got people like many Democrats, obviously, but really we were trying to make this bipartisan. We got Congressman Hurt from Texas. Mm-hmm. We got Ivanka Trump came to volunteer and visit the people. Um, I'm sorry. I've got to. Yeah, Ivanka Trump really came. Yep, and volunteered. And was there. And was quite frankly very good game. And talked to the people. And talked to the. This didn't go around, but that happened. And I'm very happy that happened, because at the end, hunger should not be. Hunger is beyond politics. Americans going hungry should not be about Democrats or Republicans. Even on this case, I put much of the blame on President Trump and willingness to arrive to a commitment. But hunger, everybody that I speak anywhere in the country like, you may be a Republican or you may be a Democrat, but you will all agree that no American child, no American mother should go to bed hungry because our politicians are not able to come to a good ground to achieve kind of consensus.
1: And so, Chef Andres, it's things like what you just said sort of explain why you were nominated for a 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Well, I don't, um, know. I don't know that. They, they... Yeah, no, I've got it right here. Yeah. Congressman, <laughs> Congressman John Mullaney of Maryland. Yeah, and yeah, among yeah. the things he wrote, because of Mr. Andres's work, millions of people have been fed. This is the most basic human need, and Mr. Andres has proven to be world-class in this essential humanitarian field. With an incredible spirit and an innovative mind, Mr. Andres is solving one of the world's ancient problems and supplying world leaders with a new roadmap to provide more effective disaster relief in the future. Now, I'm reading this and you're like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. But do you not understand why someone like that, why a member of Congress would nominate you for a peace prize? Do you not see the work that you're doing as being deserving of such a recognition? I mean, it's good in terms of my profession.
2: We are a very big part of humanity. It's many people that feed humanity. Cooks like me all around. Cooks like me that they don't get any recognition. So I think it's good for, as a profession, maybe to, to get this recognition. Even It will not go any further than that. But it's good. Just the, the dream that maybe a cook can be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize can be that very good. That could be you were. <laughs> I mean, let's just be clear. It could be good for the profession, right? That anybody can have a contribution to humanity, and cooks too. And, and for that alone, I'm very happy. But then the problem is like when I go to the fields, when I go to Mozambique, not only with my teams, but I work with World Food Program. That sometimes they get a lot of heat for what they don't do right, but they should also be getting praise for what they do right. Mm-hmm. And I was with this guy called Arroyo. I even forgot his first name, but he's one of the legends of World Food Programme. And I, and him by me, I went with him in one of the helicopters, and we went in one of the most remote areas there in Mozambique. One of the last drops of food they were doing. They were trying to cover every single area. This was the last area they were about to bring food, and that was very important. So we arrived there. there. Is hundreds, if not thousands, of people waiting, and they have all these strategically local World Food Programme people trying to organize these crowds that they're hungry. And, and we were there like probably six, seven hours. And I was helping them, like one more guy, bringing rice from one helicopter to another, moving, and distributing, singing with the people. And you still watch those men and women that are you alone, that he's been doing this for years without barely any recognition. And then you go to Haiti and you know that this person called Loon, who is the right hand of Paul Farmer from. Partners in Health, NIH. And Loon runs this amazing... It's not really an orphanage. It's a home of these 120 children that they will never go anywhere else because different sickness they have. And Loon takes care of these children. like She's the mother of all of them. She provides for them. She makes sure that she has enough bread and money and fish and education and books and health and nurses to take care of them. That Loon herself is like and Nobel Peace Prize winner and beyond, it's used. And like Loon, it's so many other people around the world that very much are doing God's work, if you're a believer, and if not, Superman work, or Superwoman work, and they don't get any recognition sometimes. For me, yes, I've been putting what I know at the service of others, but I'm very lucky because I have a big voice, so I scream more than anybody. <laughs> so people listen to me because I scream, and then I like to organize, If you buy my book, the only time I cook during the three months in Puerto Rico was that photo. (laughs) Well, I cook all the time, but it very much feels guilty because you're like, shit, one time I'm cooking and I'm in the (laughs) (laughs) cover. You know, you feel guilty, you know? Like, I'm a Christian, it's okay. You go to church, you ask for forgiveness and everything is forgotten, but still I feel guilty. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing about being a Christian, not a Catholic. It's great being a Catholic, I mean, boom. No more scenes. <laughs> I'm perfect now. Yeah, right. So the long answer to your question is, it's a lot of good people out there, sometimes with very small gestures, you know? To me, when I see sometimes one young kid that is helping this older woman cross the street, this is a almost nothing, but to me, this is a lot. It's like, wow. The world is full of those moments of nothingness that is what makes us who we are. It's a lot of good people doing things that we don't realize, but this is what makes the world the place it is. And my father and mother were nurses, and I will go to the hospital often. And I always saw those nurses and doctors going beyond their duty, sometimes with a smile only. They don't have to smile. It doesn't say that they have to smile in their, in their duties. Walking with an older person because needed to walk, No, if they need to do that. Reading a book to uh, children that is alone. I don't think that the nurse has to read the book. But they were doing it because they were beyond their duty. They were beyond their work. The wall is full of those moments, and we need to embrace those moments more often. Because then we are going to be much happier that we belong to the human race. We showcase too much the negativity of the human race. We need also to showcase the good moments and the good in the people when those moments happen.
1: I just wanna say there are microphones um, here at the front of the stage. I'm pointing these out now because I'm gonna ask you a few more questions and then open it up to questions from the audience and I'm going to forewarn you, please keep your questions short and no speeches because if you launch into a speech, I'll be forced to cut you off. And I don't mean to be rude, but I will be rude doing it. Um, So, Chef Andres, to your mind, what makes a good leader? Because everything you've just said in the last 35, 40 minutes, I would think a lot of people in this room would agree, is the sound, what you're saying and everything that you're doing is all about leadership. So from your vantage point, what makes a good leader? I do believe good leaders are those that know that they don't know everything.
2: and Leaders that they are not afraid of showing their weaknesses. And especially men, we are the worst leaders... (laughs) Because, you know, we are
1: perfect. (laughs) He said sarcastically. I just want to make sure for audio purposes.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's obvious. And I do believe that leadership should be more of that, of being highly aware that you are only as good as the people that you have around us. And sometimes it seems leadership is becoming I, the person, versus we, the people. And I do believe that everything I've done is because I've been very, very lucky of being surrounded by amazing women and men that makes leading very simple. I do believe leaders should be coming from behind. I don't know if that's the right comparison, but sometimes it's like this, you know, these things that you think when you are alone and then you say, I should never share these ideas with anybody because maybe, but I'm from the north of Spain and, and Asturias and we have a lot of milk and a lot of green pastures and mountains and a lot of sheep and goats and cows. And, and I always see the shepherds that they seem they're behind almost like doing nothing and they're moving. this amazing group of people from behind and some help of the dogs, but they always seem to achieve their objective, right? It seems the shepherd is doing absolutely nothing, but sometimes whatever is his success, which is moving this entire group of ladies and gentlemen, sheep and goats to their destiny, It happens almost without, and I do believe a leader should be that. I was in the Spanish Navy. I served one year and a half. First time I gave America was very much last week, 30 years ago. I was in a tall ship, which was a training ship of the midshipmen of the Spanish Navy, and we arrived to Pensacola. We were 300 men on that crew to move all the cells, sailing in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and the boat will always go straight, right? Or thick thugging, following the wind and the currents, and every man will do a different task, but the boat somehow will keep moving, right? For me, that was a moment that was very important because really I became the person I am thanks to that service in the Navy. But just for me to see that sometimes the commander will be in charge of moving the ship without giving an order, to me was the most amazing thing. So for me, this is very important to understand that you are only as good as the people that surround you and that to a degree you have to pass to everybody that they are in charge, that almost everybody is the leader. And if you are able to make everybody believe they are the leaders and that they alone can fix and make anything happen, then it's when leading is a piece of cake. But that's the difficulty of it making everybody believe the same crazy ideas you have without almost guiding them. Like everybody takes their own ownership, understanding that you can only be as good as the value of the people that is surrounding you.
1: Given all of the places you've been in the world and the suffering that you've seen and been a part of just coming back from Mozambique, who do you turn to for support, for comfort, for
2: guidance? My wife is here in the room somewhere. i probably, you'll recognize her because she puts her hair down. <laughs> you know, we've been together 25 plus years. and very much, she's been this kind of leader, right? That in my house, I am totally in charge. With permission of my wife. I was
1: going to say, he said sarcastically.
2: <laughs> and I've been very lucky of, through my life to have, An amazing group of friends. All of them, they've given me more than anything I've given them. Sometimes I say that with sadness because, oof, it makes me feel a bit, you know, egocentric in that sense, no? Like they're helping me and I'm not giving enough to them. But I've been supported by friends always, that they gave me these words of wisdom, their time. They're, they will come to me when they felt I needed guidance, when I call them for, hey, I'm lost, can you help? And it's why I keep repeating the same thing, that we are only, our lives is the sum of all the people that we had around us. Even people that we never met, but that we read something from, or phrase. So those are kind of the moments that create who we become. And in that sense, I've been very lucky because I had Amazing group of friends, from the people that hired me when I moved to D.C. back in 1993, who, you know, I arrived as a cook, as a chef, and they let me end owning all the restaurants and keep creating the company and becoming mine because they saw that that was my passion and they had other businesses and they moved on their own lives, on their own businesses, which they're very good at. They were super generous with that. I've been very lucky in that sense. So, again, I've been so blessed because I've been surrounded by people that they've always gave me so much. And I don't know why, but I've been very lucky in that sense.
1: So it's interesting that you come to the United States. Your first town, city, that you land in, in the United States is Pensacola, Florida. And then when you move to the United States in 93, you don't come... I, I com- moved a bit before. And in case it's any immigration <laughs> officer, I came legal with <laughs> a visa. LAUGHTER All right, you, people. All right, so, but you went to Washington instead of coming here. And I bring that up because you have just opened your very first restaurant in New York City. Yeah. At Hudson Yards. Yeah. What took so long?
2: Okay, okay. It's one year and a half of my life. Maybe we're missing there. Kind of my fault, probably. But so when I came, I finished my military service and I came back to New York. Oh, okay. And I came back to New York to open a Catalan restaurant. A restaurant from Barcelona, because I grew up in Barcelona. And then I was young, I was a cook. I kind of became a New York boy. I mean, I love New York. I mean, I fall in love with New York. But then there's one moment like New York was becoming too much. Like I need to leave Manhattan. And I moved to Puerto Rico to work in the restaurant of a friend. I moved to La Jolla San Diego to work in the restaurant of another friend. I moved to, uh, to Chicago to work in the restaurant of another friend. I got this offer to go to work in Japan. And then Washington DC rings. We need a cook, we need a chef to open a restaurant. And um, here I come, Washington. And that's how we began. I arrived in December 92. I went back to San Diego La Jolla. And I, nah, January 1903, I landed in DC. And I never looked back.
1: Did you ask my question? Oh no, you answered. Okay, so, but before I I really open it up to questions, because this is your first big restaurant here in New York. So, my restaurant in New York. (laughs) Hudson Yards
2: on 30th. So, the restaurant I worked when I came back from the Navy days was on 50th, between 5th and 6th. And was called El Dorado Petit, which back in the days was one of the great restaurants in Barcelona. And this was all before 1992 Olympic Games of Barcelona. So it was a lot of interest of Catalan companies moving too. So for me, why it took me so long in New York? Because respect. Because I wanted to come and do something different, something amazing, something genuine, something New York deserves. And uh, you have a lot of different concepts. I, I don't really open restaurants. I'm not the guy that concentrates too much on the business side of things. I concentrate in... I like to tell stories. Nobody understands a heck what I'm saying, but they all love (laughs) my stories. And my way to tell stories are restaurants. And obviously, Spain is very easy for me because it's the story of my life. But I wanted to open this kind of place to celebrate Spain. Spain had a bigger presence in New York and in Manhattan especially that even New York is aware. Spain had a bigger presence in America, that even America is aware. Why, because it was something called the US, the Spanish-American War, that Spain lost, badly. Now we are friends, as you know. Now I have dual citizenship, so I speak on behalf <laughs> of both. But in that moment, very much, I guess, the history of Spain in America was wiped out. And fine. But then, now that I've been here so long, I'm like, shit, why is wiped out? Spain had a huge contribution to, obviously, America. I mean, I wish manuel Miranda in Hamilton put some Spanish guys that were helping George Washington, not only, not only the French guy. I mean, really? I told Lynn, believe me, like, yeah, where is the Spanish boy, man? Where is Galvez? I mean, really? And Pensacola, that's why it's so important, because that battle was very important with General, the Governor Galvez, that without that, the English were kind of concentrated in Pensacola, and George Washington was let alone. That's why he survived so long. So Spain had a lot to do. <laughs> and I, you can read the history books, and you'll see it's all there. So for me to come back to New York, and in New York, it's been a lot of Spanish people, especially of the last century and a half, that somehow they've been perfect. It's a lot of Spanish restaurants in the last hundred years, that they are here and there and then disappear. But really, I wanted to come back and say... Let me open a little thing, like it's going to be the heart of Spain, in Manhattan, in New York, in the States. So we open again this place, and I hope you will come. It's not really a restaurant, not really a food court. It's just a place to come and have fun the
1: Spanish way. And I know that's something New Yorkers know how to do very well. (laughs) And with that, let's open it up to questions from the audience. Again, please keep your questions short and no speeches. And here comes a question here and here. Whoever gets to the mic first, Jorge. (laughs) Good evening, Jonathan. Hi,
0: Jorge. Um, Hi, Uh,
1: Jose Andres. um, Thanks so much for your work in Puerto Rico and around the world. Um, My name is Jorge Fontanes, I'm an NYU professor. And I think students would like to know, what do you say to business leaders who understand or those who don't, the urgency of climate change? and injustice that arises in the face of humanitarian crisis that you've observed yourself as a result of natural disasters? Great question. That's
2: a great question. Thank you for the question.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so listen, um, I am a scuba diver. I've been a scuba diving for a long time. I think it has to do with, unfortunately, my weight that has been going up. And in the water, I feel like a mermaid. (laughs) And used as a scuba diver, I've seen what's happening underwater. And I've seen corals getting bleached and disappearing and temperatures, if I check only, I'm not expert. I left school when I was 14. I only keep my computer and I check temperatures of 10 years ago and Temperatures of 10 years later on the same waters. I'm Cuba diving, and wow, it's just a change of degrees, right? Then you go to Galapagos and, and, and you see what's happening there, and then you began going places that used to be a lot of ice, and now it's not. And so, with that, is something happening. I don't know what it is. I don't know if humans were doing it. Let's say we're not doing it. But that's a matter, something is happening, right? And I rather prefer err on the side of caution and say, well, maybe it's not us, but maybe it's us, right? For the people that said it has nothing to do with humans, like, okay, I give you that, but the numbers are changing rapidly, so maybe it's not us. I grant you that, but things are, something happening. Let's do whatever we can to make it happen. So leaders are going to have to do whatever they can to Make sure that every single business, especially the super big ones that have the biggest effect, are conscious about it. But then this goes to every one of us, right? It's like when sometimes I'm in a conference with chefs, and the conference is about local and seasonal, and somebody's bitching about me because I bring things from Spain, and we are in California, and the conference is about local and seasonal. Are you with me? And the same chef is bitching about me, local and seasonal. His jeans came from Cambodia, and he's drinking 1995 champagne in California. So we need to be all pragmatic. And the companies and the CEOs of the big companies, they have to lead the way. In the big way they are, because they are massive in what they reach and how they can influence. But then every one of us has a duty really to think how we live. And how our, our little actions can have effect in everything is happening. So the issue is big, the issue is real, and I think nothing we do is gonna be enough. But I do believe that who doesn't jump today, I mean, if we don't all jump on this kind of mission of bringing down emissions, and we are very, very much, right now I'm part of the problem probably, because I open a restaurant that I'm cooking with fossil fuels. I'm cooking with wood, okay? And I've been going the last year or two, like I'm doing the right thing here. Because so I want to be a cook, and I want to cook in the traditional way. But I'm cooking in the traditional way, damaging the planet I want to live on. It's not me, my daughters. So you see, we all are going to have to be asking questions, and we're going to have to be very truthful with the answers. What cannot be is, I didn't do it. They did it. No, everybody's going to have to take their first share of responsibility on that then. Question here. I only answered one of the questions, but that's okay. <laughs>
4: José Andrés, uh, my name is Iris Navarro Millán. Uh, I am from Puerto Rico, and I just want to start with a thank you. I lived to three hurricanes in Puerto Rico growing up there, and I noticed the difference in the recovery from the time when I was growing up there and the time of Maria. Maria was extraordinarily challenging. 100% of my direct family lives there and went through Maria. So my question for you, since you mentioned earlier that you learn by improvising, You know, there is no good planning and you need to improvise because the community is the one leading to the solutions. How do you think the work that and the experiences and the learning that you got from your work in the communities in Puerto Rico could help develop a new plan to prevent further catastrophic things Mm. and better response and the island to be better prepared as we were back in the 80s and 90s when I went to three hurricanes and this never happened?
2: Thank you for That's your That's a question. great question. Very quickly, Maria, if you follow the path of Maria and the speed of Maria, it was almost like, you know, this is going to stay here, right? It's almost like if the United States government had a machine to control hurricanes and somebody at the White House was with a joystick guiding that hurricane <laughs> and say, okay, who, what can I damage right now? Oh, for Rico, because it went through the middle and as slow as a slow a hurricane can be. So I hope that machine doesn't exist. That's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) So what I want to say again was very destructive. World Central Kitchen now, after we move into reconstruction mode, we use, in the last year alone, we gave grants to 40 farms, one acre to five acres. They stay open. You can go to our webpage, wallsandtrackage.com.
1: Plow. Don't forget your mic. Oh, you got it. <laughs> plow to
3: plate.
2: It, it looks like I'm speaking bad English when I pronounce "plow to plate." Plow to plate, and we are putting four million more dollar to reach up to 220 farms of different types, hydroponics. Fruit trees, traditional, yucca, bananas, all, and then also some fishing cups. So that's kind of what we're doing. In some of these farms, we have already some kitchens that they are kind of in bunkers inside the mountain, super protected. We also have the plan for many of the food tracks on the island to be moved away from what we will believe will be the next hurricane path, put the food tracks to safety. And then once the hurricane passes, those food trucks will be the first action we will implement one hour after the hurricane goes. So we already have kind of a plan in that sense to feed thousands of people if that happens. But again, it's not only food and it's not only water. It's um, generators. You know how many people die because there's no electricity. How many people were on breathing machines, elderly people. Without the little generators, those people, they didn't have a chance. When I tell you that sometimes we have the assets but what we lack is distribution, it's true. I can tell you that I saw hundreds of those generators. The issue is that nobody was doing it on purpose and nobody was doing it because we're bad people. But we're generators that were in place that people needed in the mountains, in the heart of Puerto Rico. Bad was not the leadership to make sure that those generators will get to the people not a month from now, but today. The only thing we do is that our mission is one, We feed the hungry. Anybody that is hungry, everybody has to stop everything and feed those hungry. You see, the urgency of now is very clear in our blood, and everybody understands the message. Everybody achieves the mission, and we try to be... Even we fail more than not, because it's hungry people we can never reach, because sometimes we don't. Still, we try to do as much as we can, because the mission is simple. We need to make sure that the message of the organizations are simple, so everybody can join and feel successful.
1: Question here.
5: Thank you, Chef Andres, and thank you, Mr. Capehart, for a very a, a wonderful discussion. I work with an organization called Fancosé, which is in Haiti and works in rural Haiti with the women of rural Haiti. And your work in Haiti has been really extraordinary, at the very least, just even bringing to the world sort of a sense of the beauty of that place. So really, really grateful for you for that. The Plow to Plate project that you're doing, that's a really thoughtful kind of approach to the agricultural economy, which is kind of a little bit different than some of the sort of feeding people in disasters. And I'm kind of wondering, would you ever consider doing it in other countries, especially yeah. given our antagonism towards immigrants and the cutting off of aid, which is going to really have a terrible impact on many of those places. So I'd I mean, be really I, interested I, in asking. I
3: think the, it's, it's, a, a great, uh, so, it's a great question.
2: In Haiti, for you to understand, I wish we did more than what we were doing. I repeat, not too long ago, we were an NGO of two people, and I give them a lot of work. Poor guys. I mean, you don't want to be in an NGO when I'm part of it. <laughs> I'm a headache. That's my wife. My wife is so happy. She lives in Washington, and I'm opening the restaurant in New York. It's like vacation. (laughs) (laughs) But in Haiti, we did change 120 schools from charcoal to gas. Six years later, the 120 schools are still on gas. We did a project in Fomberet, in Palmiste where we did the only dining room in the middle of nowhere, where it's 220 children that we feed every day. We achieved that they go to school every day because they know they get the plate of food. We plan a farm next to it, which we were unsuccessful because it's been a lot of lack of rain, but we keep trying. And now we're bringing a water system that extracts humidity out of the air. So we are bringing technology. And I believe it's the right thing to do because I don't want to a, a lose. I don't want to feel we've I been mean, unsuccessful. And I want to start testing new ways. So Haiti for us has been great in that sense. We have a school for young girls. We graduate 80 women every year. We open a bakery in this orphanage, I told you. We open a fish restaurant in this same orphanage. Both businesses train people, employ people, and make a little bit of money that keeps the orphanage up and running. So this is a, some things we've been doing. We're in Jack Mel with a little fishing co We provide the mice and refrigeration so the fish maintains its value and they can sell it to the restaurants at a higher price. So, so yes, the idea for us now is if we go to a place... Can we stay behind then when the emergency pass and be part of the community? So, yes, in Haiti, it's been obvious. In Guatemala, now we are very active. We are growing our presence there. Uh, obviously, in Puerto Rico, our presence is, you see, uh, anything growing. So, it's been a few countries that if you go to our webpage, you'll see how we arrived there for the emergency, but then we kind of stay behind. In North Carolina, probably we're going to be, it's a tribe there, a Native American Indian tribe called the Lambi tribe. And we're going to try to partner with them on a culinary school to train the young men and women on the talents of cooking, to feed their own community, and maybe finding jobs in other parts of America, etc., etc. So that's what we try to do. We have four questions. I'll be questions. quick. I'll be quick. Okay. Be quick. you're up. I'm a, I am an immigrant, and my English, it takes longer. <laughs>
3: Your question.
5: (laughs) Hi, super quick question. Thank you so much for speaking. My friend and I have actually been following World Central Kitchen for a while, and we've been really curious about how we could get involved. And also, I just feel like it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to ask, what's the secret to making a good tortilla? (laughs) (laughs) I'm dying
2: to know. Mexican tortilla or Spanish tortilla? No,
5: tortilla española.
2: Bien, bien. (laughs) Con cebolla. So go to wallcentrakitchen.org and there you'll see. But volunteer for us now is when emergency happens, the local volunteers. Obviously in Africa, it's been great. We got chefs from Zimbabwe, from South Africa. It's a company called Compass, which is a very big food company in the world. I think actually they want the NYU feeding. It's gonna be one of their companies, Restaurant Associates. It's gonna be the new company that feeds NYU. I love them in a way, I'm not gonna lie to you, because these guys, every time we have an emergency anywhere in the world, many of these chefs show up. It's extraordinary what's happening. So go and buy the uh, wallcentralgitchen.org and there you'll see voice to volunteer in the sea. But then usually we need volunteers when emergencies happen. So I hope never see you again. <laughs> <laughs> and don't take it in the wrong way. But probably we'll need you one day sooner rather than later. And the proper way to make a Spanish tortilla, come to Mercado Little Spain. (laughs) It's not good, that tortilla. So it's crazy because I'm still kind of suffering from, you know, my brain is about to explode because doing a restaurant is like coding. It's like you're a computer science and you're doing code. And me, I wanted to do individual places with only one item. And me, I was like, what the heck? I'm gonna do a place only with tortilla. And me, I was like, and what happens if there are no lines? What happens if nobody stops online for a tortilla? What do I do? If the idea is brilliant, everybody, oh, the idea is brilliant. Everybody came up with it. If the idea was not brilliant, you know who they were going to finger point? <laughs> Jose, are you crazy? What do you do, tortilla española away from Spain? So far, it's working well. I go on. Uh, can I announce it?
1: Go right ahead. I'm all for the Thursday.
2: You want to learn how to make a tortilla? Watch. He's giving you the thumbs up. Do it. Jimmy Fallon, and I think I'm doing something like that. (laughs) 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 Jimmy Fallon. Thank you for that. Jimmy Fallon is going to learn how to make tortilla española. Jose Andres is telling you right now. On (laughs) Thursday. Question here.
4: Thank you, Chef. You have. Two incredible careers, the NGO and then the for-profit restaurants. Do you have any words of advice for us who maybe feel we need to do one and don't have time for the
3: other? Oh.
0: Wow.
4: Running
0: <laughs> is, you know, crushing. Yeah.
2: Again, I, I've been very lucky in the sense of if it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. It wasn't for the many team members I've been lucky to join me over the years. I wouldn't be, because sometimes, quite frankly, I go and I leave, and I don't know when I'm coming back. Obviously, you have to afford living, right? And I've been very lucky in that sense. Me and my wife, I don't think we're going to, as well as we're doing, I don't think we're going to die rich, because I'm kind of a guy that spends the money before I get it. (laughs) In, In good things. But I do, I do. I cannot help it. I think that's the real riches, kind of. Mm -hmm. What the heck I do with a lot of money in the bank? No, really. Like, shit, I'm rich, I have money in the bank. For what? For another car, for another, I don't own a car. I use the subway sometimes, I use Uber sometimes, all my daughters drive me,
1: (laughs) which, and it's legal. That was a rather curious side comment, <laughs> no, but I mean, go on. It's kind of child labor.
2: I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, like, daddy, I'm watching TV. Drive me. <laughs> it's technically uh, on the border. <laughs>
3: I go, mean, on.
2: go on. It's true. I mean, they don't complain. I mean, my daughter studies at NYU, right? She's supposed to be here. Well, she's not. She's in Madrid. <laughs> So opportunistic. The one time I'm speaking at NYU, that she's away. Like, it's something going on. Obviously, something going on. We need to investigate. But on a serious note, we only live once, and we only live once. And I do believe that maybe it was my time in the Navy. I went to Ivory Coast, and I spent a week in Abidjan, and it's the first time I really saw that was people that were not living like I was living. I was middle class, my father worked, my mother worked. Good life, no. But you know, we had food, we had, I never felt I missed anything. But Ivory Coast probably was this place that this first time I was like, wow. I was amazed because all those people that seemed they had nothing. They had this huge smile on their face. People that probably were borderline on the hunger side. But it's still somehow a smile with nothing, with no property that they own, in a very dirty, poor place they live, but still smiling. And this is something like really got into my brain for a long time. I think reading John Steinbeck, The Pearl, that is also before the Navy's first time I at least me, is the first moment I saw that was people that were living here and other people living there, taking advantage of the people living here. And that is a moment that also got me in, right? Kino, no? Was the Indian the Kino, right? Kino, Kino, the guy that found the Pearl. Did you read the, the back?: The Pearl. P E R. Dad, the Pearl. <laughs> what language you speak, people? <laughs> That's why you. You should understand accents. <laughs> all right, all right, joking. Okay. So all these things kept in me, and quite frankly, these moments of, what can you do? Really, what can you do beyond, what you are doing in your, in the world you control, right? And this, for me, has been always very important. And I've seen so many other people doing it. And me, I'm like, okay, if they're doing it, I'm jumping on the battle, right? If you have to decide one and the other, use. if you can survive with very little, use going, the one is going to make your heart happier and, and making you feel alive. Because you are only living once. So, again, I told you before, there's a lot of amazing people out there doing amazing things in the most remote parts of the world or even in our own towns. It's not very difficult to find them. We only need to do a little effort because there's always amazing people we can learn from. How can we put at the service of others the little things we know that sometimes we don't think they can help anybody else? But let me tell you, you are wrong. It doesn't matter what your talents are, big or small, powerful or not. Every little talent can improve the life of another person. Everybody's responsibility is to put that talent to improve the life of at least another person. That's the commitment we all have to have in this world right now. If we do that, we'll be fine.
1: Thank you. Thank you. The last two questions here. Thank you both, and uh, thank you, Chef. This was an incredible talk, an inspiration. And uh, immigrants really do make America great. And uh, you're a prime example of that. So, So... Okay, Okay, you're also an inspiration to me. I'm one of the 537 restaurants that partnered with World Central Kitchen um, when the government shut down. Um, And as a restaurant owner and someone who's worked in a kitchen, I'm inspired by what you do. I want to help out. I also don't want to go to a place and take a bed away from somebody or to take water or food away from somebody. But I want to go and I want to cook and I want to help. What is your recommendation for that? I know, uh, is it better for me to just take the money on that plane ticket and donate it to you, or is it better for me to come and actually but,
2: put it Either way, on? listen, we get sometimes people that come to help us, and you know, 24 hours later, we're like, I don't think we're meant to each other. <laughs> 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 but it's only because everybody has different talents for different moments. But when you see something happens, check my tweet, check World Central Kitchen tweet, Follow the wallcentralkitchen.org and you'll see that, unfortunately, the opportunities are going to be there. Hooks, we have a very amazing talent. With these two hands, we can feed the few, but we can't feed the many. Anytime you feel there you can be to help us feed the many, please, don't waste a second. You've already done it and I thank you for it. So, next time you see something happen and you can spend a week or two weeks away, as permission to your loved one first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, that's the beauty of Central Kitchen. We are a big family in the world, a big family of cooks, of farmers, of people that feed the world. And what Central Kitchen idea was from the beginning? You, you know, I, I have to say that when I moved to DC, and please understand this in the right way. The person that hired me, Roberto Alvarez, who became the ambassador of the Dominican Republic in the state. His apartment was above the restaurant Jaleo on 7th and E. And at the beginning, the first weeks, he gave me a little bedroom he had in the first floor. He had like a and across from my window, right on seventh street, was the missing soldier's home or missing soldier's house. That's the place where Mrs. Clara Barton began taking care of every single soldier during the Civil War, the American conflict, and is what very much gave birth to the Red Cross. I'm not going to lie to you that me, I will go and I will put my nose in the... It's a museum that you should be small, but you should visit when you come to see. But to me, that that woman, with only the knowledge of his craft, of taking care of the ill and taking care of the bonded could create something like what became the Red Cross, only with the willingness to make a little difference by showing up. To me, it was very amazing. And I began thinking, shit, why cooks? If we show up and we start cooking, we can do as what Clara Barton did. She took care of the ill and the wounded. We can take care of the hungry. So, you know, on behalf of Clara Barton, probably, <laughs> the same thing she did, just join us next time. We'll be waiting for you.
1: Thank, Thank you. you. And, and the last question here. Before I ask my last question.
5: Am I tall enough? Okay. You can
1: pull the mic down. You can jump and then we (laughs) work.
5: How are
1: you doing?
2: (laughs) You're doing good. I'm doing fine. You're tall enough, what are you talking about?
5: I teach here at NYU and I'd like to start by thanking you both for the lessons that you've taught this evening and in the years prior. My students are not first language speakers of English. And not once, Chef Andres, but five times this evening, you have made unnecessary excuses for your mastery of the language I was born speaking. You have plowed a plate, but you plow to communicate. What advice could you offer my students who sometimes let their fires be dimmed by the voice that they want in English? Oh, lady. (laughs) (laughs) I am an expert on that one.
2: I think it was Winston Churchill who said success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> enthusiasm. Never be afraid of uh, speak your mind. That's a matter of how weak your knowledge of the language you are trying to learn is. You know sofa? That's a sofa? <laughs> sofa, right? In Spanish it's sofa. Alright, so I come America, so far, so far, I like shit. English is easy.
3: <laughs>
2: then in English is a word called constipate. In Spanish is constipado. The difference is that constipado is you have a cold, not you have the other thing. <laughs> so I am in the restaurant and I'm telling everybody, "Hi, I'm Jose Andres, and I'm so constipated today." So. Obviously, nobody was shaking my hand. <laughs> and it took a week to the GM to tell me because he was too embarrassed what I was trying in people. So I did a lot of theater when I was young. I played even echoes of Peter Schaefer. I did Alan. I did The Ghost of Canterbury. Of Canterbury. of Canterbury, yeah.
3: <laughs> the what? I,
2: I was a ghost. <laughs> And and I was never afraid. Yesterday I was walking with this hat through Fifth Avenue, which is, has a lot of colors like the rainbow, and has a little thing like you can fly. And I bought it. And I bought it because a lot of people were kind of recognizing me, I think. And then I put it, and nobody recognized me until I heard two people saying, "No, he cannot be Jose Andres. He will not dare to wear that hat." So which was brilliant. <laughs> so tell them not to be afraid. It's good to make a fool of yourself and you self laugh with yourself about who you are. And that's hard. But then if you have groups of friends that they laugh with you and they take you for who you are, then even a guy like me can go and talk in front of an audience with very, very bad English. But it's very important, not only for non-English speakers, but for anything in life. Never be afraid of who you are. Never be afraid that you are only halfway of the person you dream you want to be. Halfway is good enough. Because sometimes halfway is all we need to be. And if we understand that simple idea, your students will do just fine.
1: Final question, and it requires just a one-word answer. (laughs) In one word, given Mozambique, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, Nebraska, all the places you've been around the world, feeding people, in one word, what does a hot meal mean? to the people who get them. Hope. Chef Jose Andres, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories